0: As you can see, uh, hey, Congressman Ryan is here, so I will I will start uh, our program. I have a few comments of my own to make, uh, for better or for worse. Um, first, I wanted to announce that uh, there is a new website, healthcare.cato.org, uh, dedicated to healthcare uh, reform from the Cato Institute's uh, uh, perspective, and I urge you to uh, uh, look at that. Also. Um, uh, we have a, a, a really interesting uh, conference today, and it covers a wide spectrum of issues um, dealing un, un, under the rubric of uh, health care reform. Uh, so it should be an interesting uh, day. Uh, not only is it a wide spectrum of uh, of elements of health care reform, but it's also a wide spectrum of uh, philosophical approaches to it. We have a real great diversity of views. In fact, we had a small dinner last night with some of the speakers and had some very stimulating uh, debates and discussions and all very civil, I thought. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that uh, today. Our disappointment is that the administration was invited to send representatives uh, to this conference and they declined uh, to do so. It's interesting to note that when the White House uh, hosted their summit on health care reform, uh, they said they were going to bring people from across the political spectrum. In fact, uh, President Obama even said during his opening comments, in this effort, every voice has to be heard, every idea must be considered. And yet, there were no free market approaches to health care reform at that uh, uh, seminar. Uh, this one, as I say, is, is different. Um, and um, uh, we do have a wide spectrum of views uh, in, the, uh, in terms of the speakers. We do not have a wide spectrum of views uh, at the podium right now. I am a libertarian, and uh, I have uh, strong views that it's um, inappropriate for the federal government to be involved in health care at all. Uh, but let me just briefly say four different things that concern me greatly about uh, the current debate uh, the first uh, deals with competition. The president um, insists that we need a uh, public uh, insurance option to have competition in health care. There are 1,300 companies providing health care insurance in America, and uh, it's one of the most competitive industries in the country. The idea that a subsidized public option, which the Lewin Group, as many people in this room know, suggests will effectively destroy private insurance is ludicrous. Um, If you want to increase competition in healthcare, the best way to do it, in my view, is to get rid of the uh, constraints on buying uh, insurance from another state. Uh, if If you had interstate competition, you would allow individuals uh, to uh, have insurance that reflects their insurance needs and, uh, and also enhance uh, freedom in the process. The second thing uh, is the whole uh, question of, uh, of decoupling health insurance from employment. We all know why that came about. Uh, during World War II, wage and price controls uh, led companies to compete for employees by offering fringe benefits, one of which was free health care. By the time the IRS it dawned on them that that was, in fact, income and they wanted to tax it, it was so popular they couldn't do it. So we have this awkward and unnecessary and, in my view, inappropriate connection between employment and uh, and health care insurance. Uh, that needs to be changed and uh, and preferably through the portability of uh, HSAs um, to uh, uh, increase the security of individuals in terms of controlling their own health care. Third, I'm very concerned about an article that appeared in the New York Times several weeks ago, and the headline was something due to the effect of, Doctor Shortage uh, Undermines Obama Plan. And I have to tell you, when I see the word shortage, I know it's a non-market phenomenon. Everything is scarce. Scarcity exists. Shortages exist because the government gets involved. And right now there's a shortage of of primary care doctors because their salaries are controlled to a large degree by the edicts of the federal government through Medicare. And uh, that is a problem. And there are other aspects of the doctor shortage that worry me. It's not just that they're not making enough money. Although I must say, a bright young person looking at a career who says, uh, you know, this is very hard work to become a doctor, and people don't become doctors just for money, but money and compensation and taking care of your family is a consideration. When you see the government is getting more and more in control of health care, it's a factor. And the other factor is the bureaucracy. How many of us know doctors who have said, you know, the paperwork is ridiculous? I didn't sign up for this. Uh, So the bureaucratization of health care is a concern in terms of uh, having enough doctors to provide quality health care. And finally, I'd say that uh, I'm concerned about uh, President Obama's confidence that he is going to reduce health care costs through his program, despite all the massive increases in spending that he's proposing. I don't doubt that the president's sincere. I mean, I could because he did say during his campaign that there would be no net new spending under an Obama administration, and that seems not to have been the case. But uh, I think he is sincere about health care cutting spending, but to me uh, it just reeks of rationing, and that would be the worst of all possible worlds. So those are my four concerns. I hope they're addressed during the, during the conference, and uh, they simply reflect my libertarian prejudices. So uh, we're going to turn the podium now over to people who actually know what they're talking about. And um, and, the, and our keynote speaker is Congressman uh, Paul Ryan, who is a good friend of the Cato Institute. Uh, our government affairs staff does not allow me to go to Capitol Hill, but when they go up there, they uh, always say that uh, Congressman Ryan has a Cato Institute book on his desk. And For all I know, that's, that's just a PR thing. You know, the, the Heritage people are coming, get the Heritage yeah. book on there. <laughs> And no, I don't think so. I think Paul reads our stuff. I do. And um, he is uh, in his sixth term as a congressman from um, the first uh, congressional district of Wisconsin. He is a uh, fifth generation. I don't. How, I'm a Virginian. You couldn't Wisconsinite. say. Oh, Wisconsinite. Yeah, I wonder. I was going to call you a fifth generation Badger, but uh, but anyway, five generations is impressive. It reflects either a strong family commitment to the state of Wisconsin or a remarkable lack of initiative. But
1: uh, I was wondering where you're going with that. Yeah,
0: I just—I'm just kidding, Paul. Actually, I grew up in Los Angeles uh, in the '50s, and um, I'm still a bit bitter about the fact that. The University of Wisconsin beat my beloved UCLA Bruins not once but twice in the Rose Bowl during that period of time. And it was more than a half a century ago, and it's time for me to move. beat
1: them
0: in 1994 in the Rose Bowl, too, I think. No, well, <laughs> I wasn't there then. I'm still bitter about the 50s. And, but but it's time for me to move on. I think we can all agree with that. Anyway, Paul Ryan is, uh, is the... Um, ranking member of the House Budget Committee, much to the chagrin of Democrats on that committee, uh, not to mention Republicans. Uh, He's also a senior member of the House Ways and Means Committee, which has uh, control over every aspect of our lives. Um, last year, Paul introduced the Roadmap, a roadmap for America's Future, uh, which uh, called for cutting spending, taxes, and uh, and and stabilizing our entitlements program to make them solvent. It was a very, very radical plan for Congress, uh, somewhat modest plan from the Cato Institute's perspective, but uh, certainly a step in the right direction, unlike, say, uh, prescription drug benefits, Paul. But uh, Paul Ryan is uh, that rarest of breeds. He is a... Republican who has ideas, and even rarer, he's a Republican who has ideas who can articulate them. He is a rising star in that party, and he is going to be a major player in shaping the future of this nation. So please welcome Congressman Paul Ryan. Thank you, so. It's
1: tough to get the same place from
2: you. Thank you.
1: Uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks a lot, Ed. It's um, like I just said to him, it's, that's pretty tough to get faint praise from Ed Crane. So <laughs> get it when you can get it. Um, let me pick up where he left off. Uh, I'll tell you about some ideas that some of us in Congress are putting out there in health care. But I want to first frame the debate and explain why we put this bill out there that we did put out there. Number one, um, the president and the Democrats are giving the American people a false choice. Uh, The president was in Green Bay just last week with this town hall meeting, watched it intently. And the choice they're saying is either you stick with this status quo, and gosh, that's so bad, or you take our plan. Uh, It is either this public plan option with all of its bells and whistles and all of its promises cloaked in the rhetoric of if you like what you've got, you can keep it. We just want more choice and competition. We just want to keep those insurance companies honest, or the status quo. There's nothing out there. No one has proposed another thing at all. Uh, That's simply not the case. And that is not the necessary choice that are confronting the American people. There are other things to do and other ways to fix this problem. But first, let me just touch off of what Ed did, which is, if we do go down this path of what we call the public policy option, the public choice option, the public plan option, um, that inevitably, mathematically, actuarially, becomes the government-run monopoly. I won't go into all of the details, just go to Lewin, talk to the actuaries. What happens is when the government is put in this position to compete against the private sector, the government is both the referee and the player in the same game. It's kind of like my seven-year-old daughter's lemonade stand competing against McDonald's. It's a stacked deck. The private sector cannot compete with that. The private sector has to pay taxes. They have to account for their employment and their benefits of their employees. The private sector can't put dictates into the, into the provider network on what they're going to pay. And so when you take a look at the fact that we're saying this public plan option will base its payments off of Medicare with maybe some modest increase, keep in mind that Medicare underpays providers 20 to 30% to begin with. So it is simply a question of when, not if, if a public plan option is set in place, it completely displaces the private sector. Now, the one thing about the status quo that's better than this vision is you can fire your insurance company. If the only insurance company you have is the government, you can't fire it. And so we believe that we have to go to the American people with a better way forward. More to the point. Uh, The next shoe that's going to drop in this debate is what I call the CBO shoe, the Congressional Budget Office. And I serve as ranking on budget, so we talk to CBO quite constantly, and they're really putting an earnest effort into trying to really honestly score these bills. Sections... A through D in Title I of the Kennedy bill costs a trillion dollars. And that trillion dollars buys them uh, insurance from 16 million people. You factor that out, that's about $62,500 per person to insure them through the government system uh, over 10 years. Uh, what, what they're also telling us is tens of millions of people will lose their private health insurance and go into the government plan. And that's just the beginning of the score of a piece of one title of that bill. Uh, HSI, a private actuarial firm, has scored the Kennedy bill. It's costing $4 trillion over just 10 years. So what we're on the doorstep of doing here is creating a brand-new entitlement that's going to rival the likes of Medicare. And no matter what kind of what we call pay-for packages cobbled together to, quote-unquote, pay for this in the first 10 years – There is no way, based on the current discussion, the current legislation we're seeing, it's ever going to match the actual cost of this new program. So what I'm saying is we are building into the system. We are creating a new entitlement that will grow out and become a new unfunded liability piled on top of the other unfunded liabilities we have, which, according to the GAO, a conservative estimate already ranks at $62 trillion. And so this, to me, is is a real huge problem. It is accelerating that tipping point in America where more people are dependent upon the government for their livelihood than they are upon themselves. We already have a little over 40 percent of Americans who we call negative taxpayers. That's ways and means language, which means people who receive payments from the government in excess of their income and payroll taxes. You put everybody up to a system that is a government-run health care, where that is where they get their health care from the government, and I fear you're going to reach this tipping point after which We have become a social welfare state, not unlike what we have in Europe. And what happens when society turns into that is you lose sight of liberty, you lose concern about liberty, and you're more concerned about security, economic security and other forms of security. And what happens when you become a social welfare state is society stagnates, standards of living go down, creativity, innovation, achievement, production, risk. Those things wash away, and you have high unemployment. We don't want to go down that path. So, health care, this issue is so much more than just do you have insurance? Do you have access to medical care? It is more than that issue. It is a moral issue. It is an issue about what is the role of the federal government in this, the 21st century? Which pathway and which trajectory is America going to go down? Are we going to stick with the American ideal of equalizing opportunity, of, of protecting our individual natural rights, or are we going to replace that vision? and stick with a new vision of a European social welfare state where the goal of government is more to equalize the results of people's lives rather than to equalize people's access to opportunity. Let's get to health care. We believe you can fix this problem not by pushing the market out, but by bringing the market in. And one of the reasons why health care is, is not doing so well right now, meaning one of the reasons why health inflation is so high, one of the reasons why there are so many distortions in healthcare. care, one of the reasons why millions of Americans don't have access to affordable health insurance is because we've displaced those basic fundamental tenets of a free market. What are those tenets? Number one, transparency on price, transparency on quality, and an incentive to act on those things. You don't know what things cost. You don't know who's good and who's bad. And even if you knew such things, be forced by your insurance company or HMO or the government on where and who you've got to go to to get your care. So we don't want to pick a model which says the government will ultimately be the single-payer. And it is right. Under that model, you can contain costs. I talk to Peter Orzak about this stuff all the time. We know the President is sincere in saying his goal is to bend the curve and reduce costs in the long run over these entitlements and throughout health care. The only way one can do that on their plan is to ration care. The Institute of Comparative Effectiveness, this new bureaucracy created in the stimulus package, is the bureaucracy through which, through which you actually end up rationing care, telling providers, doctors and physicians, that we enlightened bureaucrats will tell you how best to achieve efficiencies, how best to deliver care in America, but the only way to quantifiably lower costs, get the $38 trillion unfunded liability in Medicare to go away, is to limit people's access to health care. That's not America. That's not who we are. It offends Our sense of individual rights of freedom, liberty, and choice. And so, can you fix this problem without going down that path? My answer is yes. And that is exactly what Congressman Devin Nunes, Senator Richard Burr, and Tom Coburn and I are attempting to do by putting out this Patients' Choice Act. Patients' Choice Act, I will give you, I won't go into the great details of it. I'd be happy to answer that in questions because I want to be mindful of your time. It does a number of things. Number one, let's recognize this tax distortion that exists. The tax distortion, as Ed discussed, is what helped give rise to this third-party payment system. It's what helped give rise to this system that sort of took the individual out of the game, that took the consumer out of the game. And we want to equalize the tax treatment so we get the individual back in the game. We want the individual to be at least as powerful as these other systems we have in healthcare, And so we're not saying, like some Democrats are saying, tax health care benefits and send the money to the government so we can build a new system and and have new mandates and a new public plan option, we're saying, let's equalize the tax treatment. Let's take this tax benefit and de-link it from the job and reattach it to the worker so that everybody, regardless of how you get your health insurance, gets this tax benefit. Now, the way we do it, different than every other bill that has tried to do this, is the tax benefits, the exclusion that individuals get, goes back to the taxpayer we do not use that exclusion money to pay for non-taxpayers, such as refundable tax credits. So the tax money they, they get right now by having deductibility if they have employer-sponsored health insurance goes to them in the form of a tax credit, $5,700 for families, $2,300 for individuals. The numbers we are looking at right now internally show us that that's on an average an $1,100 tax cut for families. This will be, on, for the vast, vast majority of Americans, a big tax cut. More to the point, you keep this benefit regardless of what happens to you. You keep your job. You change your job. You lose your job. You go work for yourself. The tax benefit stays with you. It's portable. For the refundable population, we, we do entitlement reform. We come up with savings. We reduce spending, and we use that spending reduction to pay for the fact that these tax credits are also advanceable and refundable. So people who do not have tax liabilities also have these kinds of tax credits. And what we do in entitlement reform are a couple of things. Number one, we say that Let's not continue to segregate poor people from the rest of society when it comes to health care. Let's not have those Medicaid patients come into the clinic and the doctor's office in the hospital with poor persons stamped to the forehead where they're pushed back to the side of the line. You've got to remember, and I don't know if where each of you come from, but where I come from, most doctors won't take Medicaid patients. It underpays them. They don't want it. And so you already have rationing occurring. They're already getting, in many instances, second-class health care. So we're saying integrate them in with everybody else. Voucher out Medicaid, a cash benefit for Medicaid families, $5,000 on, on a card to go in addition to this tax credit. So a Medicaid family under the poverty line, about $11,000, 10700 to be specific. And then for people up to double the poverty line, that cash benefit phases from $5,000 down to $2,500. And integrate them into the system. Now insurance, I'll go quickly over to this. Worse, and by, by the way, these Medicaid reforms save about a trillion dollars, and that helps us pay for uh, the kinds of things that we're doing to make sure that the money that goes to non-taxpayers comes from spending savings. The money that goes to the taxpayers comes from the money that taxpayers were getting under the exclusion. This bill is revenue-neutral, tax-neutral. That's very important. You can fix these problems. You can have universal access to affordable health insurance in America, even for people with preexisting conditions, without having the government take the thing over, without new taxes, without new spending. And that's exactly what we're proposing. On insurance, we're suggesting to set up state-based exchanges. These exchanges are voluntary from around, voluntary for the individual to participate, voluntary for the insurance companies to participate in them, voluntary for the states to set them up. We have incentives for states to set them up so that people can go and have basically like e-health insurance in each state or in state – Uh, regional cooperatives if they want to. States can join together to form these exchanges so people can go into the individual market and see on an apples-to-apples basis what kind of health insurance they want, compare and contrast plans. These things we're saying in exchanges, you have to have a system, a mechanism, so that the uninsurable, people who had breast cancer eight years ago or had prostate cancer, can also get affordable health insurance. Risk adjustment uh, is the tool we use in this. We're also encouraging states if they want to do um, risk pools or reinsurance, they can choose to do that as well. The point also is we want to have a basic uh, benefit so that you can give individuals access to affordable health insurance like large multi-state corporations do through ERISA. So each of these exchanges had to have at least a minimum kind of a benefit health care plan without the bells and whistles. It's a Blue Cross standard option. It achieves the same thing you seek to achieve with interstate shopping, but does it another way, which we believe is easier to pass through Congress. I'm a huge fan of interstate shopping rights for insurance. It's in every other one of my health care bills. Um, but we know from doing this in Congress that there's no way we'll get that passed. So we're achieving it a different way, which is the purpose of having an interstate shopping right is if you're stuck in New Jersey with all of these heavy mandates, you want to buy an Iowa or a Wisconsin-regulated plan which has just the basics and is much more affordable. Well, why don't we have these state exchanges where that Iowa and Wisconsin basic kind of plan is available in New Jersey? That's one of the mechanisms we put together in these exchanges. So we give individuals access to more affordable, basic insurance that doesn't have all these bells and whistles and all these heavy, costly mandates. Another final point I'll simply make. In addition to health IT, privacy protections, and things that are not run by the government, we also think you need to have transparency. And here is a huge difference in opinion from where the White House is going and what we're proposing. The White House and Reggie Hertzlinger, you're talking next, I assume, Reggie. Reggie Hertzlinger can do a far better job describing this than I can because this issue is really her brainchild. The, the, the notion of having the comparative effectiveness housed within the Department of Health and Human Services is a regulatory model whereby enlightened bureaucrats will decide how health care is to be delivered, how transparency will occur, how best practices will happen, and then the government, the, the greatest payer now and probably the single payer later, if this plan comes effect, will make these decisions. Enlightened dictates from bureaucrats are still dictates from bureaucrats. And so that is not the path toward um, transparency. And that, in my opinion, will take these young people coming out of society, out of school, and they're going to look at this new sector and say, why would I want to be a doctor Why would I want to have all these student loans, spend all this time in school, only to come out and basically be a de facto employee of the federal government and have them tell me how to do my job? So what I fear is if this regulatory model is put in place, it's the same kind of bureaucratic model they have in England. They call it the National Institute of Comparative Effectiveness, otherwise known as NICE. Um, This is not the regulatory model we want to pick. We're saying let's have a market self-regulatory system. We want transparency. So let's take a look at FASB, the Federal Accounting Standards Board. It's a very similar system that we're trying to replicate here, which is that is not a government agency. It is all the stakeholders involved in, in setting accounting standards, innovating with new, new tools so that you have transparency and the market self-regulates itself. If you say you're going to use these standards and you cook the books, then the SEC will get you because you committed fraud. We're proposing the same kind of structure. So that when we're measuring things, Replacing a hip, a knee, a cataract surgery, you know, bypass. The American College of Cardiology, the orthopedic surgeons, the specialists themselves will design the metrics at which we measure these things. So the stakeholders themselves in a market self regulatory structure will come up with standard metrics on price, on quality, on best practices, and the market will make the decisions within there. And if you say you're using these metrics and you cook the books, then you will be committing fraud and the government, the Health Services Commission, like an SEC, will come and get you. What we're trying to say here is we want to have health innovation. We want to make sure that those heart surgeries that are invasive now become less invasive later, and we want to encourage those kinds of new breakthrough technologies to be rewarded, not controlled within a government system. That's why we want to have not bureaucrats writing these regulations, we want to have the American College of Cardiology saying, here's how we should do it this year and here's how we should do it next year, and standardizing the metrics. The point here is this. Our plan starts with and revolves around the individual. We take all the money we spend right now, which is two and a half times per person than any other country in health care. The government itself will spend $5 trillion over the next 10 years on health care for people under age 65. We spend plenty of money, enough money. Take that. And don't spend it through bureaucracies or through third parties, but through individuals. And give individuals power. Give them power to get affordable health insurance. Give them power in the form of money to buy that health insurance. And give them power in the form of information, apples-to-apples comparisons on how best. And through that power, going through the individual, we believe you can fix this problem and everybody can have affordable health insurance, even though they might even have a preexisting condition without new taxes, without new bureaucracies, where the nucleus of the system, at the end of the day, is that patient-doctor relationship, not a government bureaucracy. And with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions.
0: If you'd wait for the uh, microphone and uh, hold it fairly close to your mouth and and, uh, give us your affiliation, Uh, we have time for a few questions. You want to pick? Uh, yeah,
1: I'm just, I think they said they are going to be voting. I'm just watching my vote thing. That's why. I'm, um, sure, whoever. Vote uh, no, whatever.
2: <laughs> I probably, I'm sure, I will be voting no. Dennis Jones, D.R. Jones & Associates. Just one question. How would your plan impact the role or the tax benefit of the current HSA program tied to consumer-driven health care plans? As, as
1: one of the co-authors of the law to begin with, that was my amendment to the uh, 03 law, HSAs. I'm obviously a huge fan of HSAs. We, uh, ex- we expand HSAs in our bill. We also allow people to pay their premiums out of HSAs if they want to. So um, let's take the talking point. If you like what you want, you can keep it. If you like your employer-sponsored plan, and by the way, we don't change the tax treatment on employers. They can still deduct it off of their taxes to provide it for their employees. You get your tax credit, you can put it in your HSA, and then you can pay your premiums out of that HSA. So we expand HSAs to allow people more freedom to choose how they want their health care delivered to them. And if they're a person fortunate enough to have it offered by their employer, right now HSAs don't allow you to pay premiums and things like that. We expand HSAs to allow you to pay your premiums through your HSA.
0: Wait for the mic, please. Yeah, sorry. I'll try and get in the back. I Um, Sven Larson, Wyoming Liberty Group. We're a small free market think tank out there. Um, We're actually um, working on a health reform proposal for Wyoming largely along the lines that you're sketching. And one of the things that we come across, and I'd like to hear your take on this, is that it's hard to make a reform when you keep Medicaid intact, especially how Medicaid is expanding. So we're experimenting right now with uh, ways to privatize Medicaid, frankly. And... um, the, believe it or not, but there's a lot of people in in the state legislature that, that like that because they would get out of the, the right. uh, uh, federal um, uh, mandates. What's your take on that? How, how do you see uh, uh, reform, uh, private, privatization of free market reforms in Medicaid in, in the context what, of – What uh, our
1: bill process? does is it vouchers out Medicaid and it turns it into a defined contribution system. It says to the individual on Medicaid, you're not going to go through the government to get your health care – Here's a card, a debit card with five grand on it that can only be used for health care. Um, if you don't use it all, so on so our bill, five grand and then $5,700 tax credit on top for a family, and you can roll that money over you know, year to year uh, in your HSA, and you use that to go and buy private health insurance. What our bill estimates is not for state governments, it saves $863 billion over 10 years. What's the Wyoming number? You got that, Charlotte? One point two billion that 's pretty small well it 's a small state, but our bill will save wyoming's state budget one point two billion over ten years in Wisconsin it will save us fourteen billion over uh, over ten years in california it 's like one hundred and twenty eight billion dollars I think one hundred and eight billion over uh, ten years so what we 're saying is find contribution it looks it 's basically scored as a block grant. The state will have to shell out less cash, and the money will not go through the state to have bureaucratically driven health care the money will go through the individual to go into the private market to select health insurance. And we have, you know, assistances, like exchanges, to help them shop for affordable health insurance. Just how about somebody back there? Are we going to... Oh, i got I to go vote. I, I apologize. How about two more? This is fast, and then I'll go... He, the hook is trying to get
0: me out. I think many of us would love to leave here today with a single sheet that would show, from the individual's perspective, how this formula works when if I have a twelve thousand dollar family policy with an employer, and I'm going to pay now taxes on it, which is say a third is four thousand dollars, you're going to give me a voucher for fifty seven hundred. Right. I need to know how to pay how I'm yeah. going to pay you the fifty seven hundred to pay for a twelve thousand dollar policy. McCain had this basic idea; he could never articulate it, maybe because nobody was interested or he couldn't get the time. But we yes. can't. Get this sold unless we understand the benefit in dollars terms for the transaction by the individual.
1: Our bill is different than his. Number one, the money from taxpayers goes back to taxpayers. We don't take this tax exclusion and spread it to non-taxpayers. So the credit's larger. The tax cut is bigger. We believe, on average, the tax cut is about eleven hundred bucks per family. Now we're going to be putting these numbers out. I've gotten this request a few times. The way to think about this is what tax bracket you're in, put the value of your deduction versus the cash of a tax credit. If you're in the 28% bracket, this tax credit equals something like a 17 dollars to $18,000 plan, deduction. So it gets complicated. Let me just simply say this. We're saying delink this tax benefit from being tied to the job and reattach it to the worker themselves. So the worker has the freedom to choose... Do I want to keep my health insurance from my job, or do I want to go do something else with my money? And you know what? You end up getting rid of job lock. A lot of people stay in the job because it's, they got health insurance, even though they don't want to stay in the job. And let's basically give this, this, this tax benefit to the worker, not to, not to the job, so they can freely move about society and take this benefit with them. Um, we'll put question. these up. One last question. How about the guy standing right there next to the mic?
2: Thank you. I'm Bill Shaker, American Consul for Healthcare Reform. Uh, have an intera- uh, I'd like to know your thoughts on, on the following scenario. I had uh, I had uh, some some test procedures uh, performed earlier this year, and uh, they amounted to about nine hundred dollars. I had recently uh, converted from Blue Cross Blue Shield to Medicare. Well, Medicare paid. About, the total bill was around $900, Medicare paid about $150, and I received a, a bill for a copayment of about 50 bucks. Uh, it would have been the same scenario if I still had Blue Cross Blue Shield. Well, I went down and, and I, I spoke with the hospital people, the administration, and I said, well, what would, it, what would the situation be if I was self-insured? I would have had to pay the whole bill. Okay, so that's kind of why I think I would have a problem with HSAs and being self-insured. Do you have any uh, sure. any options for that?
1: Your story is a perfect example of price controls in government-run health care and how it is a stacked deck of unfair competition where the government competes alongside the private sector. And under that kind of a scenario, there is no possible way the private sector could ever compete with that. And that is why a public plan option quickly becomes a government-run monopoly. Now let me just tell you about where I come from in Wisconsin in the Milwaukee area. The price of an MRI ranges from 400 bucks to 5,000 dollars. The price of a bypass surgery in Milwaukee ranges from 47 grand to a little over 100 grand, and and you have no idea the difference in quality. So what we're saying is, let's make you av- let's make information available to you so you know ahead of time what's the price, what's the quality, and I now have an economic incentive to shop based on value, which is price and quality. And so the point here is let's not use bureaucratic controls and and rationing to deal with health inflation by just clamping down on prices and costs and reimbursements. Let's use the power of the individual consumer to go in there and make these competitors compete against each other for our business. So if I'm going to get tests, number one, defensive medicine and, and, and tort reform is a big part of that, by the way. But if I'm going to get tests, if I'm going to buy something that's elective or something I have time to think about it, you know, non-emergency, I'm going to go and say, well, how much does it cost here? How much does it cost there? And who's best? And I'm going to shop based on value. And that kind of consumer pressure coming into the system, which really doesn't exist right now, will help bend the curve and attack the root cause of health inflation. And at the end of the day, you still have the freedom of choice as an individual on when, where, and how you get your care, and that is a precious right that should not be displaced under this new kind of a system we have. I apologize, but I have to run because they're telling me a vote's coming up. So thank you, everybody. Appreciate
0: it. Thanks, Congressman Ryan. Great talk. I'd like to invite the next panel up here. Thank you.